Two, you on eight. Two on eight. Okay, you're clear. Stand by for your base. Welcome to EMS Cast, where we provide high-level education for you, the providers on the streets. I'm your host, Ross Orpit. And I'm Will Berry. And we're here live at the Rocky Mountain Trauma Conference, and we're here with Dr. Stacy Trent, who is the Associate Professor of Emergency Medicine at the Denver Health Emergency Department and Associate Director of Research in the Emergency Department. Thanks so much for joining us. We just listened to a great lecture from you about airway in the emergency setting. And so real quickly, you kind of set up the lecture with a mnemonic that you use for a lot of your intubations. That mnemonic is SOAPME, or suction, oxygen, airway assessment, pharmacy and plan, monitor, and equipment. And going through that mnemonic before you intubate somebody to make sure that you have all the equipment you need, as well as are prepared to handle all the situations. And I think for me, as I was listening to that lecture, Yes, the suction, the monitor, the equipment, those are things that we absolutely need to think about and have prepared. And when you don't, it can turn into a mess. But that's kind of like a checklist of items that a lot of us are familiar with. What I think sometimes often gets left behind is A, the oxygen, and more specifically, the pre-oxygenation before you intubate, and then the airway assessment and the plan portion of that. And so you talked a little bit about the safe apnea time and the pre-oxygenation, and I was hoping to go through that a little bit more with you. You talked about in a healthy adult, if you took any one of us and suddenly just gave us RSI meds, paralyze us, the amount of time that we would maintain oxygen saturations above 80-90% would be 45 to 60 seconds. But we can change that significantly with pre-oxygenation. So can you talk to us a little bit about what you do for pre-oxygenation and how that changes that safe apnea time? Sure, absolutely. So pre-oxygenation is really key. And importantly, what we mean by pre-oxygenation is that you are giving somebody as close to 100% FiO2 as you can for at least three minutes. If you're intubating in the back of the bus, you may not have three minutes. You may not be able to get 100% FiO2, but more is better in both situations. So the more oxygen you can give them, And the longer you can give it to them, it's going to help improve that safe apnea time. And what you're trying to do is you're trying to not only get your oxygen saturation up to as close to 100% as you can, but even somebody whose oxygen saturation is 98, 99, 100%, they still have a pretty low functional residual capacity or their stored oxygen that's in their lungs after they've passively exhaled is actually quite low. But if you give them 100% FiO2, you can almost quadruple it by basically displacing the nitrogen that's normally in our inspired air, displacing that nitrogen with oxygen, and basically giving yourself this gigantic reservoir of oxygen in your functional residual capacity at the time that your patients become apneic. You talked about, just to put some numbers to that, most of us maybe have a half liter of that residual oxygen capacity after we stop breathing. If you pre-oxygenate somebody for three minutes, you can increase that almost to two liters. Yeah, over two liters, which is pretty amazing. And the way we do that is one position. So if you can, if your patient's able, sit them up, right? Your lung mechanics are better when you're sitting up. You kind of squish your abdominal organs down with gravity and you can increase your functional residual capacity. You decrease that atelectasis that you get in your lungs if you're sitting up. If you can't fully sit up, at least getting your head of bed up to 20 degrees 
And if you're in a trauma patient, this probably actually won't work well on your beds in the rig. But if at least in the emergency department, if you have a trauma patient who's in C-spine precautions, you can put them in reverse trim Dellenberg where they're basically flat, but their head is higher than their feet. Yeah. And if you're in the ambulance, say you're using a scoop or a backboard, oftentimes if they're on that and you increase the head of the bed, they'll stay in those spinal precautions and give you that same yeah, reverse trim, trim Dellenberg. Besides positioning, I would also say, you know, you got to oxygenate your patients, right? And the best way you can do it is probably with a non-rebreather. Now, at a 15 liters per minute, which is what we normally use non-rebreathers at, that only gives you about 60 to 70% FiO2. But if you can crank it up to as high as your oxygen canisters allow you, you can get higher. You can get 30 to 60 liters per minute, and that will get you 90 plus percent FiO2. And if you can keep them on that, keep that mask in place, try and minimize any leaks. There's obviously going to be leaks, but do what you can. That really will help get that oxygen stores up. And even if you're not intubating in the bus, if we have to intubate in the emergency department, that already sets us off to a good set. Yeah. And that's a great hack and kind of describe what you're talking about there. If you have that oxygen tree on the wall of your bus, if you're using your house tank O2, it goes to 15 liters, but it will actually go much higher. And so you just keep turning that knob until that little ball is bouncing off the top of that. And it's actually much higher than, than 15 liters. And that's what you want to do in this situation. Yeah, absolutely. I want to back up a little bit and go back to the assessment because that was something that I liked from your lecture, because I think Pre-hospital providers, as well as emergency physicians, don't have the luxury to perform the same airway assessment as anesthesia folks. And so could you, you kind of honed in on a couple specific things that were really helpful. I'd love to hear you talk a little bit about those. Sure. There's lots of different airway assessments out there. And as you mentioned, the vast majority of them are really not applicable to your obtunded, agitated, you know, critically ill population. They just can't cooperate with those assessments. But there are some things we can do. And the most important thing you can do is look with intention at that patient's airway. So you can see a lot of things, right? You can see, does that patient have a small chin? Do they have a beard? Are they obese? Do they have a large tongue? Do they have facial trauma? Are they in a C-collar? All of these things are predictive that you may have an anatomically difficult airway, meaning that you're not going to get a good view when you put your laryngoscope in the mouth, or that it might be really difficult to bag them. So if you get in a tricky situation where you can't intubate them, you also may not be able to bag them very well, which you might decide, do I need to intubate them in the bus or can I wait to the emergency department where they might have a little bit more hands and tools to effectively intubate the patient. So the lemon mnemonic is one that's often used, but I think the first letter of that is the one that we should all focus on, which is looking externally, see what you can see, and a lot of what you can see will actually help you. One of the other components of the lemon mnemonic is to evaluate the 332, which means can you put three fingers in the mouth? Can you put three fingers underneath the chin and hit your hyoid bone? And can you put two fingers from your thyroid notch to your hyoid bone? The one that I think that is helpful, if particularly if somebody is not in a C-collar and if they're kind of sitting up and pre-oxygenating, is can you get three fingers underneath their chin to their hyoid bone? And that's also kind of predictive of do they have a small chin? So even just looking externally, both subjectively, do they have a small chin and can you get three fingers underneath their chin? That's really predictive of whether or not you're going to have an anatomically difficult airway. So if they have a small chin or you get less than three fingers, you should know that you're going to be having difficult view when you look in that airway. One of the things I really like about that is 
I think sometimes when we hear about these assessments, we're like, great, another bullet point on my checklist that I need to do in this chaotic situation. However, when you're doing your jaw thrust, your head tilt, chin lift, you're trying to hold a seal with a bag valve mask, you can simply look, like you said, look intentionally, assess intentionally where your fingers lie. If you open their mouth to insert an OPA while you're preparing, you know, you can do these measurements. And so I think incorporating them into some of the things that you're already doing gives you a higher probability that you're going to adhere to these sorts of things. Absolutely. If you just kind of slow down, it's always chaotic, but to the extent that you can be sort of dogmatic about your approach to intubation, the more you do it, the more routinely that you do it, the more you're going to do it all the time and be better set up for success. Exactly. And incorporating it on the patients who maybe you don't need to intubate right now, but you're worried you might need to. We talk a lot about practicing it on the patients you don't need it is going to prepare you for when you do need it. And so that'll just, again, make it a little bit of second nature. You talked about another test. Say you work in a system that has RSI. You've decided for whatever reason you have a patient with respiratory distress who you feel you need to intubate, but they are otherwise awake and cooperative. And that was the upper lip bite test. Can you talk about that? Yeah. So the upper lip bite test, if you do nothing, well, you should always look like externally, but if you do anything else, if you have a cooperative patient, this is the test that I probably would do. And what it is, is that if you can take your lower teeth and you can put them over the top of your upper lip, over the vermilion border, that is actually very good and predictive that you will have an easier intubation. If you can't do that, if your lower teeth only kind of hit the middle of your upper lip or you really can't even hit your lip at all, that is highly predictive that you're going to have a difficult airway. Something I want to touch on really quick is the assessment is good, but I think sometimes pre-hospital providers miss like, well, now what? Okay, so I assess and the magic eight ball is saying this is going to be really difficult. So what do I change? Because some pre-hospital providers aren't performing enough intubations to then say, oh, this is when I change my practice to a different tool, device, positioning, whatever. So I was just curious, maybe both of you, what do you guys change in your plan, if anything, or are you trying to make your first attempt, your best attempt kind of philosophy? This is a perfect segue into the next point that I wanted to talk about that often gets forgotten is coming up with a plan before you intubate. Yeah. So as I mentioned, you need a plan A, you need a plan B, and sometimes you need a plan C, right? So really looking with intention, identifying if this is going to be a difficult airway, and developing those sequential plans is really important. Now, we have lots more tools in the emergency department than you have in the ambulance. So I'm going to talk about what I would do in the emergency department, and then you guys can chime in as well about how that may apply in the back of the bus. If I know that I'm going to have somebody who's a difficult intubation, I am going to choose my device intentionally. We have direct laryngoscopes. We have video laryngoscopes. Video laryngoscopes have been shown to improve your grade of view at a bare minimum. So if I can see the airway, it's more likely to pass the tube successfully. And in observational studies, that has been shown over time and time and again. So if I know I'm going to have a difficult airway, I'm probably going to choose a video laryngoscope to start. If I think I might have an anterior airway, if somebody really has a small chin or if they have a short distance between their thyroid cartilage and their hyoid bone, those are sort of predictive that your airway may be a little bit more anterior. I might choose a hyperangulated blade because that's going to help me sort of get around the curve and 
visualize that airway better. I'm also going to make sure that I get as much safe apnea time as possible. I'm going to pre-oxygenate as best as I can. I'm going to position the patient in a way that is going to be optimal for sort of aligning the axes from the mouth to the larynx. Ideally, you want to be able to be in that sniffing position where we talk about that the ears are at the sternal notch. And that is obtained by either putting some blankets or towel rolls behind the shoulders and sometimes even propping the head up with more towels and or blankets to sort of get the patient in the optimal position. Yeah, perfect. And I think going back to that pre-oxygenation, which you just brought up again, is so important. And sometimes we think about in the emergent situation, the pre-hospital situation, well, oftentimes this just needs to happen now. But truly nothing just happens immediately, right? You got to get your tube out. You got to get, if you're going to RSI, you got to get your drugs ready. There are things, there are steps as you're preparing to go through this soap me mnemonic to intubate. That entire time that patient needs to be pre-oxygenating. So even if you can't accomplish that full three minutes, there's going to be a couple minutes while you set up all these equipment and that patient should be on nearly 100% FIO2, even if they're completely apneic. BVMing can also increase in pre-oxygenation. And you talked about a study with a, a BVM that showed some good results with that as well. Yeah. So this was in patients being intubated in the medical ICU. There was a randomized control study that was published in the New England Journal, I believe in 2019 by Casey et al. that looked at if you bagged somebody after you gave RSI drugs, if you bagged them intentionally, slowly using good technique with a peep valve, if you did that between induction and the time you put your laryngoscope in the mouth, they had significant improvement in their lowest oxygen saturation. So those patients who got ventilated during this apnea time, their oxygen didn't drop as much as the patients who didn't get ventilated. That makes sense. But probably more importantly, they didn't get severely hypoxemic, which by that we mean they didn't drop their oxygen saturation below 80%. And the number needed to treat here, and I'm going to futz with the actual percentages, but the patients who were bagged, I believe was 11% became severely hypoxemic and 23% of the patients who were not ventilated, so not bagged, became severely hypoxemic, which correlates down to a number needed to treat. So for every nine patients that you bag between induction and laryngoscopy, you prevent one episode of severe hypoxemia, which is pretty remarkable. And I'll bring up one more stat to drive home this pre-oxygenation and then I'll, I'll let this horse lie. But you talked about, again, that safe apnea time of 45 to 60 seconds if you took any of one of us and just made us apneic. If you pre-oxygenate, you can increase that up to like eight minutes in yeah. a healthy patient. Yeah, that's in our healthy patients. And, you know, we're not intubating healthy patients. That number is less in our, you know, moderately ill patients. The number that I've seen is about five minutes in your moderately ill patient. Obviously, your more critically ill patients are consuming oxygen at a higher rate due to their critical illness. So they're even going to be less than that. And our obese population is less than that as well. It's three minutes. But three minutes is better than one minute. And it's even less than one minute in our obese populations if you are just giving them room air. So pre-oxygenation is critically important. Absolutely. Yeah, I think people are, are hearing more and more now resuscitate before you intubate. And some places are using push-dose pressors. Some places are advocating for a fluid bolus. Some places only have the option to give a fluid bolus pre-hospitally. You spoke a little bit to what data is available regarding that. Will you kind of talk a little bit about fluid bolus and push-dose pressors to try to prevent cardiovascular collapse? Yeah. 
It's a really important topic and some fluid bolus volume expansion preload as well as vasopressors are really the two things that we have at our disposal to try and prevent cardiovascular collapse. I'd say there's only been one really, I think, pertinent study that looked at fluid bolus in a well-done way. So they randomized patients in the medical ICU and I believe also one emergency department to get a 500 ml fluid bolus at the time of induction. So somebody was basically standing there with a half liter bag and squeezing it in at the time that drugs were being pushed. And they completed that bolus before they put the laryngoscope in the mouth. So they gave a 500 cc bolus of fluid right at that kind of critical time where the patient's becoming apneic and paralyzed and you're getting some of those cardiovascular effects of our drugs. And Unfortunately, while this would make sense that physiologically this might help, you're giving them preload and that this might help prevent cardiovascular collapse, unfortunately it did not in this study. And they actually even did a secondary study because they saw a little signal in patients who were on positive pressure ventilation prior to intubation. And that would make sense that that population has sort of decreased preload given the positive pressure and that fluids might be more beneficial in that population. So they did a second study just looking at that population. Unfortunately, they didn't find a difference either. So if you're giving a fluid bolus right at the time of intubation in hopes that it will prevent cardiovascular collapse, unfortunately, the evidence suggests that it probably won't. So our other option is vasopressors. And there have been a lot of observational studies. Certainly, we all sort of do this. It makes sense. And we know that vasopressors increase your blood pressure. We have some push-dose pressors that are available to us, whether it's phenylephrine or epinephrine. But you can also use drips. You know, you can use an epinephrine drip if somebody is sort of in cardiogenic shock. You can use norepinephrine, which is, you know, honestly what I jump to mostly and just put them on a drip prior to intubation. And you can sort of titrate that rather than giving them a, a big bolus. But that takes a little bit more hands from pharmacy and whatnot to get set up. So what you mostly have available to you, which I'm sure you can speak to, is sort of a push dose option, and you can use epinephrine from your code carts to do that. And, you know, at this point, there's no good data. There's one study that has looked at this at a single center. They randomized patients to get atominate versus ketamine in the ICU when they were getting intubated. And what they found was that ketamine did actually improve their seven-day mortality, but it didn't continue out to 28 days. So that kind of benefit was lost, which kind of makes sense. One single dose of a single drug probably isn't going to really impact somebody's long-term mortality. But it wasn't powered for that. So maybe if it was a bigger study, we might actually find a bigger difference there. But an interesting thing that they did see was that patients who got ketamine actually had more post-intubation hypotension than the patients that got Atomidate. And that seems a little counterintuitive, but it actually, I don't think, I, I think it's not. You know, ketamine has these properties where we get hypertension and tachycardia, and we would think that if we gave that drug, that that would prevent cardiovascular collapse. But a lot of our patients are sort of already maxed out on their adrenergic curve, for lack of a better word. Like they're really clamped down as much as they can. Their heart is beating as fast as it can to maintain its cardiac output. And those benefits that you get with ketamine, you know, they can't do anymore. And so what you get instead of the hypertension and tachycardia is that you get some myocardial suppression and you get a little bit of hypotension. And so while it makes sense that ketamine might work to help prevent cardiovascular collapse, I think that the verdicts, like, we don't know yet. And we need a bigger trial than a single center study to tell us whether or not one of these drugs is superior in preventing cardiovascular collapse in the ED. 
Yeah, in my mind, based on just the best available evidence, they're pretty similar hemodynamically, etomidate versus ketamine. I don't know if you agree or disagree. Yeah, I think I think we don't know. I think we know that atominate is really hemodynamically neutral and it's what we've been using for a long time and we're very comfortable with it. We're starting to use ketamine a lot more. And I would just, you know, the caveat being that don't be surprised if you get hypotension in a ketamine patient, you know, be prepared for it. That single center study actually showed that they used more vasopressors after seeing ketamine. So just be prepared. You may not get what you think you're going to get. I have one last question. So this is not super scientific, but you closed with kind of two thoughts. One, facilitate the best view you can get, and then also give yourself the highest level of success passing the tube. And to focus on the passing the tube part first, you looked at a study using bougie and talked about tube with stylet and kind of the take-home point, if I may, was sort of Whatever you feel like you are most practiced at, have the best success with, go with that. Do you feel like that logic also carries over to some other aspects of this? I know some of this data lends towards like video laryngoscopy being helpful, but sometimes I wonder these situations can be so emergent if it just comes down to like what that provider feels most confident using. I know it's kind of hard to study that. Yeah, you know, I alluded to a study that's going to be coming out in a couple of weeks in the New England Journal. So go pick up the New England Journal in a couple of weeks. Uh, and, and that study will probably be out by the time this releases. So what's the name of that study? The name is the device trial. Go, te- go check out the device trial. Yeah. And it speaks a little bit to this, right? And I would agree with your summary of my statement that you should use what you're most comfortable with. But there have also been studies that have looked at, like, how many intubations do you need to be an expert in intubation? And you need hundreds, right? An emergency physician at a high-volume medical center is going to get at least 100, and if they're lucky, 150 to 200 intubations. You know, our anesthesia colleagues are getting thousands of intubations. And, you know, they're really practiced in direct laryngoscopy, And at least our current graduates and the graduates from the last, you know, handful of years, definitely since COVID, really don't know how to use a direct laryngoscope anymore. We've really sort of phased it out. And I think that's a little bit to their detriment because I think that it's a harder tool to use and it requires you to do a lot of little things to really position the blade in the right position to get a good view. Whereas you can put a video laryngoscope in the mouth and like, voila. 70% of you are going to get a grade one view without really any effort. So I think for those of us, you know, who are practicing and getting low volumes of intubations, even if you're an experienced emergency physician, if you're only intubating a couple of times a year or a couple of times a month, that's probably not enough to really keep that skill up. And video laryngoscopy is probably the tool that you should use. Now, it saddens me to say that because I think that we should be teaching direct laryngoscopy because I think when you get into trouble, it's all the little things that you need to do with your blade to get a better view. But even if you're, you know, if you're an emergency physician training residents or if you're, you know, EMS captain or educator training your paramedics or medical director training your paramedics and you have video laryngoscopy, that's great. If you have the option to turn the screen around 
you give them a direct laryndoscope while still having the benefit of the screen available. And that's sort of what I've started using with our trainees to simulate direct laryngoscopy, make them sweat a little bit because it just makes them sweat. They don't know what to do. They don't know how to position themselves. They don't really know what they're seeing. But it's that uncomfortableness that they need in order to get that final outcome and learn all those little tricks. So you can do both with a video laryngoscope. You can do direct laryngoscopy and you can do indirect laryngoscopy, which is looking at the screen. And that's kind of a nice benefit of video as well. Another nice benefit that I'm hearing a lot of people doing is reviewing those video recordings and actually using those to teach different small skills and techniques of, you know, you see you're a little right of midline here, a little left of midline, or a little too deep or a little too shallow. And that can be another advantage. Yeah, we've started implementing that at Denver Health. And I think it's been really helpful, even like just immediately after intubation. You know, I often see that the residents aren't putting the tip of the laryngoscope blade directly at the hypoepiglottic ligaments. And if you're above that, you're going to get a worse grade of view. But if you're right on it, then you're really going to be able to lift the epiglottis. So that's been super helpful to sort of show them like, here's where your blade tip was and here's where it needs to be so that they can replicate that in the future. Thanks so much, Dr. Trent. Yeah, thank you so much. Yeah, it's awesome. Last question. What's your favorite FOMED resource? Yeah, you know, I don't really love FOMED. PubMed. PubMed. Okay, Google great. Scholar. All right, great. Thanks. No, actually, I'll say, I'll say, which is a little bit of both. Um, I utilize Journal Feed, which is a nice sort of summary of the high-level emergency medicine and pre-hospital medicine, critical care medicine articles that have come out instead of having to, you know, keep your finger on the pulse of a million journals. They do that for you and sort of give you the high level summaries. So yeah. I would say yeah, journal that's feed. awesome. Yeah. Great.